Good evening. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks for September 9, 2014. And I'm here, Frank, as the beer ambassador uh, once again. And this week, or this month, our featured brewery is Mountain Toad Brewing Company from 900 Washington Avenue, just, just kind of up the hill a little bit here, over the creek and up the hill just a touch, Mountain Toad Brewing Company. And today we have a craft cream ale, and we actually have descriptions of it up on the, on the wall, and a white IPA that's available today uh, for sale. And I thought they were both very nice beers. I'd uh, gone on recon last week, uh, late in the week, and... <laughs> I, I told all my brethren here, well, I think we should go with the Saison and the IPA. And then uh, on my way out that particular day, they said, well, try this cra- uh, the Kraft Cream Ale. And so I tried that, and I thought, oh, that was really good. So then <laughs> yesterday when I was uh, kind of finalizing our order, I went with the Kraft Cream Ale, forgetting that I had told my brethren in Golden Beer Talks we'd have the Saison, this uh, farmhouse, this grain house uh, ale. Anyway... Mountain Toad Brewing Company. Actually, I, I met some people from Golden Beer Talks there by chance last night, and someone said, so what's with the Mountain Toad? What does that really mean? And it's actually on the back of their coasters. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's read this, but along the riverbeds, canyons, and marshes of Colorado lives the Rocky Mountain Toad, feeding off small insects and living in both water and land. A happy local toad population indicates a flourishing, vibrant, and well-balanced environment. Thus, the mountain toad is a symbol for a good, healthy, uh, for good health and vitality within our community. We believe that our beer is only as lively as the community it is enjoyed in. Rugged, whimsical, and adventurous, the mountain toad is a playful character that embodies the atmosphere of our brewery and the beers we brew. So, I, I kind of like that. And. I had promised that there would always be some sort of beer trivia, and so this month it's about white IPAs because I had never had a white IPA until last week. And I tried the white IPA, and I thought, whoa, that is so good. Uh, Very citrusy. You know, I I like IPAs, so uh, a bitter beer I prefer. Um, But a white IPA, so what is a white IPA? And, you know, all of these beers, uh, I've talked about beers that have been around for hundreds of years. The White IPA is a new and very popular beer right now. It was basically invented in 2010, so four years ago, not 400 years ago, when Deschutes Brewing Company and Kansas City Boulevard Brewing Company, they got together to sort of invent a new beer. And they came up with this White IPA. It mixes the hop character and the brewing techniques of an IPA with the wheat base and spice additions of a Belgian wit beer. Belgian brewers use a large proportion of unmalted wheat, which gives the beer a lighter body and lighter color and a slight slight refreshing tartness to the beer. And the Belgians also typically use spices and aromatics in their beer, like orange peel. And if you've tasted this uh, white IPA, I think it's very citrusy. And coriander seeds to add complexity to the beer. So all of this adds up to an easy-to-drink and refreshing beer, the white IPA. Uh, and this is a suddenly popular and sort of a new brew. And they, uh, on the website, on the brewing information, they think it's going to be a new capital S style of beer. But it's still new enough that not everyone's brewing it. So I thought the white IPA was quite interesting. And with that, I will introduce Whitney, who's going to introduce the speaker and a few other things. All right. And we should have glasses for sale. Right. 
golden beer talk glasses for five dollars a piece and 20 for a set of four First, I think we should hear it for our beer ambassador. I mean, it's, it's the picture of diplomacy. Who else can wrestle, really, truly wrestle with the nub of the issue, the Cezanne versus the cream ale? And then sort of which trivia to select. I mean, he has a tough job. He has a tough job. <laughs> it's not working? No, you need to be closer. I need to be closer. All right. Our speakers tonight are Dr. Dendi Sloan and Dr. Cynthia Norgren. They're the authors of this lovely tome on brain science. They're experts on many topics. Tonight, we're going to talk about the brain science thing. Yeah, it's the library card. Which leads me to the next topic. This book and others are available from the Lending Library right over here. So when we take our Q&A break, if you would be interested in perusing one of these books, you can check it out from Matthew. There's many, including this one and those. And they each have their own little library card. And I will wed this book back to its library card here in a moment. Let's welcome Dendi and Cynthia up here. Well, good evening. Uh, how many of you don't have a handout that would like to have a handout? Raise your hand. How many of you have seen episodes of the Big Bang Theory? Raise your hand. Oh, uh, okay. In that case, I won't say welcome to Shel from Sheldon Cooperville up on the hill. Uh, thank you for having us this evening. We're delighted to be here. Uh, the fact that so many folks will be here are here makes this a success before it even starts. So we're delighted to have you here. This is the second invitation we've had to come here. We've only been able to come once. The first invitation was when I had a quiz to give in that evening, and so we're delighted to be here. Um, we want everybody to understand what we're going to say this evening. So we're, we're going to stick to broad concepts about the brain using pictures. We're not going into chemistry or physics or biology or any of that stuff, but we'll leave that to your later reading if you'd like. And if you'd like to read more deeply, consider one of the seven books we have on the table that you'll look at at the beer break. Okay. Um, and they're listed on the back of your two-sided handout. These seven books are relatively easy to read books, not the scholarly books of biology or neuroscience, anatomy or medicine that you might consider in professional school. Um, on your two-sided handout, these seven books are listed at the bottom of page two. You can see each page of your handout has a number at the bottom. And before we start, just take a minute and look at the pictures, those three pictures you have on your handout, and try to generate some questions from these pictures that they raise in your mind. Our objective tonight is to try to pique your interest to understand how memory works in the brain by an impossible 30-minute overview. <laughs> Naturally, you'll have more questions than answers, but we hope you will hold the questions until after the beer break. We try to come back and try to answer the questions. And perhaps these three pictures will make a start about how the brain works. Now, let me introduce my colleague, uh, Professor Cynthia Norgren, uh, has been a neurosurgeon for 50 years, it's, uh, for 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> Only 15 years. 
at, at Swedish here in Denver, and she's been a teacher at the School of Mines for the last decade or so, a, about a decade. Um, she's the real expert who knows what she's talking about tonight, and if you see some of the pictures and CT scans and fMRI pictures that she has, you'll believe that. But we're not going to show any of those to you this evening. And she's going to talk about figure one, which is the figure right up at the top of your handout. So if you just look at that and follow along with Cynthia as she talks, I'll uh, leap into the breach later on. Okay? Can you all hear me? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I have some basic concepts that I'm going to go over. Mostly anatomy and physiology, because as a surgeon, I like anatomy and physiology. Well, you know, okay. Um, if it works, it's great. If it doesn't work, call me, right? So there are three different types of memory, three different types of learning, and guess what? Three types, three kinds of brains. Now, this doesn't mean that you and I are the only ones with one brain and everybody else has three, okay? <laughs> We all have one, well, wait, I have one and a half, right? This is the actual size of a brain, uh, so you can see how actually tiny it is. Of the three types of memory, there's short-term, long-term, and working. Short-term memory is what you use to remember to carry the two, okay? When you're, you're adding or subtracting or... You know, if any of you uh, still balance a checkbook, <laughs> yeah. But this is, you know, where you put something into your memory long enough to use it and it's gone. It has no significance, it has no importance. Long-term memory uh, is memory that is long-term. It lasts the rest of your life, such as who's the leader of the band that's made for you and me, M-I-C. K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Okay, we all know it, right? Long-term memory is there either because of repetition, such as when you were in kindergarten, or because it has a lot of emotion attached to it. Emotional memories are longer lasting than non-emotional memories. Then um, the working memory is kind of in between. It's what you do at the work table. You pull something out of your memory to use it to solve a problem. Then it goes back into memory. When it comes out of, or I'm, when short-term goes to long-term memory, that's called consolidation. When you pull it out of long-term memory to use it, when it goes back in, it's reconsolidated. It's not the same memory. You've added context, timing, what you did at that time, uh, why you used it to solve the problem, all of that is added to it as it goes back. So the stories actually do change every time you tell them, right? With learning, there are three types of learning. There's memory. Long-term memory is learning, the very basic learning. The second is actually learning connecting memories together. And the third is understanding, knowing how to connect them all together. So we have memory, learning, and understanding. We have short-term, long-term, and working. Now for the three brains, uh, the more interesting of these th 
three topics. Uh, we have three types of brains. Um, the very basic brain is right here. It's this big. And this is the archicortex, the reptilian brain on your handout. This takes care of being alive. So essentially, heartbeat, blood pressure, uh, blood pH, uh, digestion, breathing. So we don't have to remember to breathe. It takes care of everything autom automatically. And higher centers can sometimes dictate it's time to get nervous, right? So let's uh, up the heart rate. The second brain is this part, this C shape. So C for Cynthia, right? So it's this, this part of the brain, kind of the center of the brain. And this is known as the paleocortex, or the old mammalian brain. The old mammalian brain tends to work with instinct, survival instincts. And that's the four Fs. Fighting, fleeing, feeding, and mating. <laughs> so, uh, this is also the part of the brain that has the amygdala, which gives emotion content to memories. When input comes into the brain, it'll come in through whatever sensory pathway to the first place it goes is to the amygdala. It's called the low road or the fast road. It's just boom, right there. And the first thing that, you, that the amygdala does is look at that uh, input for survival. That's why when you see the garden hose out of the corner of your eye, boom, it's a snake. Because the amygdala will put that fear into it before your conscious mind even sees it. Okay? Your conscious mind won't see it until it comes up through the high road. So the low road is fast, the high road is slow. Um, and the amygdala, when I say that it adds emotion, it adds the emotion of a very strong emotion. We're not talking about being mad. We're talking about rage. Okay? We're not talking about being scared. We're talking about fear, primal fear, uh, gut-wrenching changes in uh, the body because of emotion, those, those uh, very strong emotions. And then the upper part of the brain or the newest part, the neocortex, <clears throat> is the biggest part in the human brain. And it is uh, where we get sensory input, we associate it with what we know, we associate it with what's novel, we make judgments, uh, we are socially appropriate, uh, we learn to do different things with the neocortex. Okay? So this was done the early part of the 19th century by looking at histology slides. The 
archicortex and the paleocortex have three layers of gray cells. The neocortex has six layers. So it is a different structure evolutionarily wise than down here. So um, if you lose the neocortex, you lose the psychology or the humanness of, some, of, of being a human animal. If you lose the paleocortex, you lose, you lose um, the uh, instincts of survival. And if you lose the archicortex, you are no longer alive. So you need these three to move from the being able to control all that to actually being able to feel all that. So it's like um, one of the uh, researchers uh, in the past has said that the amygdala is your fear center. And you don't need, well, you need to learn what to be afraid of, but you don't need to learn how to be afraid. Okay? Uh, you need to know what to be angry and rageful or fight for, but you don't need to learn how to fight. You don't need to learn how to eat. You have to learn what you can eat. You know, so the, the very basis of um, uh, the amygdala is between the, the archicortex and the brain, the neocortex, it connects everything together. We can't survive without the lizard brain. So we all have a lizard brain, and then uh, as it moves up into the neocortex, or into the uh, archicortex and paleocortex, and then up into the neocortex, uh, we become more and more sophisticated, not only with memory, but with learning. And so with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dendi, who gets three pictures. Okay, now we're going to talk about the picture on the bottom of page one. You can see the picture on the bottom of page one is about the neocortex, which is what Cynthia told us about where long-term memory is stored. I have a couple of visual aids to help you understand the neocortex. This is about the size of your neocortex. But of course, it's crumpled up. It's crumpled up to fit it inside your skull so that when women give birth, they won't kill themselves about one square meter. And this is about the thickness, about six business cards, about two millimeters thick. So what we're suggesting to you tonight is the part of the brain that makes you human, that gives you judgment, that enables you to think like another person. When I look at Whitney, I say, I wonder if I can see what she's thinking about what I'm saying now. If you can do that, that's what you call a theory of mind. And that's some degree of indication that your neocortex has matured, typically about 30 years. <laughs> as, as we look at the six layers in the figure two at the bottom of page one, you can see there are three messages associated with that. 
The first message is that Gesundheit. <laughs> the first message is the brain stores memories in patterns. It doesn't compute memories algorithmically like a computer was. Computers are much too slow to do that. So the brain stores memories in patterns. And what this is suggesting to us, this is a particularly appropriate figure because is today is the day when iPhone 6 came out. And this figure was generated by the guy who invented the uh, Palm Pilot and the Trio, which we know that Jeff Hawkins put, that Stephen Jobs put on steroids to give us the iPhone, right? Uh, and not the iWatch necessarily, but the iPhone. So he did, the, he did this inventation while he was trying to convince the people at Intel that he really needed to study biology in order to have mobile computing go along. What he's suggesting to us in this figure is that you go up these six layers in the neocortex. You can see we've got three columns here, one for vision, which has about 50% of the neurons, one for audition, and one for touch, which each have about 25%. Smell and taste are relatively minor senses, and so we don't do those very well as humans. And so vision, touch, and audition is what we have here. And what you can see in the picture as you go up in this, you consolidate the patterns into bigger and bigger patterns. And we all know when we see a youngster, like this young lady in the back, sit in front of the television or sit in front of the iPad or sit in front of the phone for time after time after time, what she's trying to do is to make sure that the world makes sense by establishing the patterns in her brain. Okay. The second part is, when we think about memories, we usually think about memories relating to the past, but in fact, memories are the most powerful tool we have to predict the future. So, for example, based upon the memories that you've had at the beer talks, you can say, after about a half an hour, these guys are going to shut up and let me have some beer, or walk over to the, mem- walk over to the library tables. You can predict, you can make those kind of predictions, and the fact that you're able to make those kind of predictions indicate that the world makes sense to you. So what this is telling us is memories are, are based upon the patterns that we have. The patterns allow us to predict the future, and the prediction of the future is a little different because how well we predict the future defines our intelligence. It's not like Alan Turing or B.F. Skinner told us. Intelligence is not behavior. Behavior is an offshoot of how well we predict the future. Okay. So the last thing I want to say about this figure is these long-term memories compose our very view of the world, how we see the world and how we see ourselves in the world and whether the world makes sense or not. So now let's turn over and look at these neurons in the neocortex on this picture. This this uh, picture comes from a fellow who's trying to teach elementary and high school teachers about how the brain learns. And of course, the three books that we've chosen the figures from are up there on the table. What they're suggesting to us, what he's suggesting to us is by common analogies. You can see the vertical line on the left looks like it's a Venetian blind. Just to the right of that is a clipboard. Just to the right of that is a working table. And just to the right of that is a filing cabinet with a smiley face above it. What David Souza is suggesting to us is that as the information comes in through our senses, the, the Venetian blinds first filter it for survival functions. 
And if it has to do with survival, like a rattlesnake or a possible mate or a good, good food to eat, then you take action right away. And that's what the arrow is going out. You're taking action. If it can pass the survival function, it comes into the clipboard that we call immediate memory, which with the working memory makes up short-term memory. The clipboard is just something that you can store like for 30 seconds, long enough for to get to the cell phone so you can dial the right cell number that your friend told you. And if it passes that, it goes to a working table. And this working table is where we solve problems. When we think about solving problems, it's in this small space that can hold maybe four to seven things for maybe as long as 45 minutes. And you can see not only does it bring in new things, but it brings in old things like from the file cabinets from long-term memory. If it's, if it's good enough to pass through the working cabinet, if it has sense, if it relates to the other things in the filing cabinet of your long-term memory, or if it has meaning from you, like this young lady might be interested in knowing that the driver's license in Colorado occurs at 17 years, not 16 years as it would in some other state. So you can see her, oh, I've got to wait that long. It has meaning for her to know that information. You can see, so then you take things out of long-term memory and you bring it back to the working table to help you solve the problem. I mean, if you can solve the problem, you take action on it right away. So you can see when you look at these file cabinets, what these file cabinets are doing are they're comprising your sense of the way the world works. These file cabinets are really like the six layers of neurons that you have in the cortex on, on this, the figure on page one. Okay, this, this comprises your sense of the self. Okay, and so when you think about how these things work, you think, well, let's pretend like my psychiatrist friend, Leon Oxman, throws me a ball. Okay, if he throws me a ball, one way that people might think of the brain is the brain would solve millions and millions of equations, Newton's equations in motion and my equations for robotics for trying to move my arm to catch the ball, but that's not really right. What the brain is relying upon is the memories that I have of playing ball with my parents and then with my siblings and then with my little league team for establishing muscle memory. I never got beyond a little league because I was a poor baseball player. But what, what the brain would say to me is I have to analyze by what Leon has, what leaves Leon's hand. I say, yeah, it looks like a baseball that is thrown at me. And then I have to have muscle memory and think, how am I going to deal with that? I think I'll deal... I'll use my right hand to catch it rather than my left hand because I'm right-handed and I'll have to analyze it such that I'll move my hand backwards so I can retreat, I can slow down the ball as it comes to me. So what we're saying is we're bringing in new information here from the left. It passes a survival test. He's not kill, trying to kill me, I hope. Um, and I say, it's a ball. Yeah, it's on a working table. And from the muscle memory that I've established from my childhood up to the time I was about 12 years old when I stopped playing ball or so, I can bring in that and try to figure out how to catch the ball. That's a, so with this little example, we're going to stop. But let me tell you a little bit about the books that we have here. We've listed seven books here. The first three books are listed as pioneers. That means people like Eric Kandel. Eric wrote the first book on neuroscience that Leon studied when he was in medical school. And now it's in the fifth edition. Um, and he won a Nobel Prize in 2000 for the way he established 
the growth of protein, the molecular pathways for a growing protein. The second book is by Joe Ledoux. Joe is at NYU, who's, who's really the world's expert on fear. And the third book is by Jeff Hawkins. Jeff is the guy who's responsible for this uh, handspring, palm spring uh, trio, palm pilot, that sort of thing. And his book is up here, too, on intelligence. They're really wonderful books, but they're a little more difficult to read because they all have to do with sort of new science. They're all calling pioneers. They're easy to read. They're not medical books and that kind of thing. So you might enjoy reading them, but you might enjoy reading these four books down at the bottom. The first book is the, really the place to start. It's by John Medina. John's, John's a neuroscientist from Seattle. Wonderful guy. This is a New York Times bestseller book. And what he's talking about is how can you use your brain to be more efficient at home and at school and at work? Wonderfully written book. And you know the New York Times bestsellers aren't written by people that are poor writers in general. John's a great fellow. And he's spoken several times here at the School of Minds. Can I give that back to you? Um, the second book is by Jerry Rudy. Jerry's a teacher who, is the, who has the University Distinguished Professorship at CU. To my opinion, he has the best book in the world on neurobiology, learning, and memory. And every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I take the bus up to see you to learn from Jerry and what he's doing. As I travel around the country, I go to every university bookstore and say, what book are you using? And they're always using Jerry's book. It just came out this year, 2014. Wonderful book. The third book is by David Souza. It's How the Brain Learns. It's the simplest of the books. Um, and, and that's the book that was written for high school and kindergarten teachers about how the brain learns. And the fourth book is our book. We don't want to advertise it too heavily. But because we're, we're just about over time now, we want to stop and let you uh, have a beer, refresh yourself, stretch your legs, come up and look at the books if you want to. And then we'll come back for some questions and answers. Okay? All right. Thank you. So please feel free to go on up and help yourself to another beer or a snack. Ten minutes for this break. Oh, Michael. Michael, how are you? We should recognize this young man from the Czech Republic, uh, Michael. Michael, stand up. Michael's a, Michael's a pre-med student. Michael, in fact, is the one who did all the illustrations in, in the book that we have here, and he did a great job of doing that. So thanks for coming, Michael. Michael's over at Anschutz now. So. Um, it's time for us to, to try to field any questions that you have, and we hope, you're not, we hope you just be kind. Okay, yes, sir. Hey, it's a geriatric question. Can everybody hear the question? Okay. It's uh, Alzheimer's and where is Alzheimer's located in the brain? Uh, Alzheimer's is when there are plaque formations within the brain. So there's abnormal tissue that develops in the neocortex. Um, memory for uh, with uh, Alzheimer's is both distant and recent memory problems. And so that tends to be neocortical. If somebody uh, loses the ability to make new memories, but the old memories are fine, 
that is in the hippocampus, which is uh, basically neocortical, but it's strongly connected in with the paleocortex, but it's neocortical. So yes, uh, a brain biopsy for Alzheimer's to look for these tangles, fibrillary tangles, they go into the neocortical area. Thanks for that question, Matt. And of course, it's a great question. Of course, we know there's. Uh, Matt said he's heard that exercise enhances memory while you're learning, and and that's certainly true. If you read the Brain Rules book by John Medina, uh, the first of the Brain Rules is exercise, and John Medina is having a back problem because he doesn't exercise as much as he might now but he claims to have written the book in part while he's on a treadmill. Uh, there is a memory pandemic in this country, certainly as the population ages. We, we estimate maybe 10 million or more with Alzheimer's, and it worries all of us as we all get older, sure. Andy, would you pull the mic a little closer, Ah, ah, okay. Can I? Yeah, all right. Um, being a non-exerciser, non-sunshine person, um, I don't go outside unless it's dark and I go in my car or something. Um, yes, exercise is extremely important, but for making long-term memories, sleep is the most important. So when you sleep is when you're actually augmenting and growing uh, the uh, processes to make long-term memories. That's why cramming doesn't work, okay? Cramming puts everything into working memory. It does not go into long-term memory. But repetition over time with sleep in between is where memories are formed. I, I would just add to that if you're stuck, if you just don't think you can think, there are only three things you can do. Because brain doesn't store glucose, one thing you can do is eat, but don't eat high-fat foods. The second thing you can do is sleep, as Cynthia mentioned. And NASA tells us that when you take a 26-minute map, you can increase your efficiency by 34% from a NASA report. Uh, and the third thing you can do is exercise. There was another question. Yes, sir. <laughs> do, do all three brains age at the same time? And no, and nor do they all develop at the same time. The uh, lizard brain is developed and uh, mostly mature by the time an infant is born. Okay? An infant doesn't have to deal with its heart rate or digestion or... Um, you know, I mean, it's working basically on its paleocortex. Scream when I'm hungry, scream when I'm wet, scream when nobody's around, scream when I'm afraid, you know, so it's working on its own paleocortex. The neocortex, on the other hand, will take up to 30 years to develop. And then uh, a lot of, I want to say, toxins drugs and alcohol and nicotine and uh, all the other fun things tend to degrade the neocortex first. 
As a matter of fact, you can remove the neocortex and your lizard brain will still function fine. Well, you know, I, I think that's, that's a concern that we have about learning auditory and learn visually. And, and when you think about what's going, when you think about what's going on with the brain and, and you think about vision and having twice the number of neurons for vision that you do for audition and touch, you can come up with the reason why the lecture method has persisted since Sir Thomas Aquinas started using chalk and, and slate back at the University of Paris in the 13th century. You know, because when we see things and we hear things at the same time and we write it down, we're using most of the neurons in the brain. So if you had to say, are auditory learners at a disadvantage? I have some people sitting in class who just say, I'm an auditory learner. I don't think I'll take any notes. You know, It's kind of a disadvantage to do such a thing. So I would just suggest to you that that's why we know that lectures aren't the best way of teaching. We know that active learning is a much better way than using PowerPoint or using YouTube or things like that. I'm, I'm sorry not to give you a complete answer to your question, but I don't know anymore. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, Cynthia, would you like to talk about that? I, we can talk about MRI or PET. Um, there, are, as technology advances, now uh, research is going to follow it. Research is not going to be ahead of technology. But as we get these new technologies, uh, the MRIs and the SPECT and PET and fMRIs and all this, we're beginning to be able to look for the first time at a living brain as it functions. We've not been able to do that other than with EEG. Uh, otherwise, we have to look at dead brain. Uh, and so we, this is a, a really a new frontier, and we're gathering massive amounts of information, but there's a limited number of people who can actually sift through that to find the right answers. But yes, if you have a head injury, even if it's um, minor, it can leave a scar. Brain doesn't heal very well, so it will scar. And you can have uh, different kinds of injuries that we, you know, when I uh, was in residency, we'd never seen before. Shear injury. Never saw shear injury until we could actually identify shear injury on MRI. Um, and so we're beginning to get a better idea of some of the problems and also how, like the amygdala, if the amygdala 
uh, when I said that, uh, when you add um, uh, intense emotion to something, the memory is much more resilient. And also that when you sleep, memories are formed. So if you have um, a near explosion, you're in the shock zone, but you're not uh, in the blast zone of an explosion, you can be knocked out, you're passed out, you sleep, and that emotion and the sleep can lead to you, a person remembering that over and over and over. Every loud blast is going to bring that up. It's back into that survival, and it's there, and it's not going to go away easily. And so these people need to learn how to deal with that and how to develop techniques to minimize that kind of trauma. That's part of the uh, uh, psychedelic flashbacks. And, and such that I guess Hunter S. Thompson, you know, was famous for, right? You get the flashbacks. You, oh, yeah, you know. Um, and uh, so now we're beginning to understand how this stuff is working. So we don't have to say you're crazy. Yeah? Uh, we're beginning to see some physiological uh, reasoning for it. So as these uh, techniques develop, as the engineers are going full blast, the scientists are right behind them trying to keep up and trying to get that information and sift through the enormous amounts of information to pick out what's the relevant and, uh, uh, and how it's not enough to know that you have a one millimeter tumor. Your neurosurgeon has to look at you and say, how am I going to get there and how will I know when I'm there? You know, what do I do about a one-millimeter tumor? Uh, so we have to develop uh, strategies for treatment based on that. But this, this new technology certainly gives you a way to Oh, absolutely, absolutely. A living brain in, in situ, while it's working, we've never had that opportunity in the past. So the technology is changing really rapidly. So we talk a little bit about this in Chapter 5 in the book. The, the technology has gone to MRI and fMRI, which means magnetization of the brain. When you look at the old technology, the CT scans, the PET scans, the PET scans, anything with a T in it has tomography, which means something is passing through your brain, which is why people are going to things like magnetic resonance imaging so you can magnetize the brain you don't have to pass things through the brain so that's come about really in the early 90s so we're learn really learning about those kind of things now new new technology other questions yes sir well the function of the free brains as much it precedes the technology that's for sure um, the ox, well, would you like to say that? I, I can answer that one too. Uh, it, it's uh, before technology, how can you figure out the three brains? What, uh, before technology, what uh, the surgeons would do is when a patient came in with a severe headache and their left leg is dragging, 
they would follow them, examine them, keep track of them, and when they died, then they would look at the brain and say, oh, right there, that's where the left leg is, okay? So it was lesionally driven. And then Penfield in the 20s through the 40s, I guess, uh, 1920s through 1940s, every patient he operated on, he did cortical mapping, which means he would use an electrode and stimulate an awake patient to see where everything was. And he came out with thousands of cortical maps, and that helped to uh, allow us to look at brain that was normal functioning by stimulating it. And then with EEGs and other kinds of stimulation uh, techniques, we've been able to map the motor, sensory, speech, eloquent areas of the brain. Um, so it kind of, you know, back in ancient Egypt, the brain never even went in a canopic jar. It wasn't worth saving for the afterlife. You know, they pulled it out with a hook through the nose. And when you look at dead brain, it doesn't look like it does anything. So it isn't until we can actually start working on live brain. But the three brain analogy actually over 60 years developed into the three brains. It wasn't that, oh, somebody figured it out all at once. It was uh, added onto and added onto. And the current... Uh, theory is there are no three brains. But, uh, you know, so there is some debate about the whole thing, but uh, the basic levels and the cytoarchitectonics of the brain show us that there are three distinct types of his, uh, brain histologically. So it was looking at slices of dead brain. We should, we should say... Uh we have Leon Oxman here. Leon's a psychiatrist who's just retired for the third time. <laughs> and for his third career, he was treating people with PTSD. So if you have questions about PTSD, he's a good guy to talk to because he's got lots of practical experience. There were some other questions in the back. Yes. So earlier it was stated that uh, as an indicator of intelligence, That's just the way this theory goes. It's Jeff Hawkins' theory that you can predict the future more accurately based upon the patterns that you've established through your experiences. And it might be hard to do that in a darkened room if you've lived there all your life. Now, what we're telling you is not the absolute truth. It's not the absolute truth. Because we know that absolute truth is only come by through religion. Right? It's through religion, through religion, absolute truth has only come by through religion. If you go, if, if you go to the neuros, if you go to the, the Nobel scientist to see you and put a gun to his head and say, "Okay, tell me in basic particle physics what you know to be absolutely true," he would say, "You better shoot me." Right? <laughs> Which is just. Calls that 
Yeah, and of course, Tillich was a great theologian. Yes, uh, let's see, Leon, you had your hand up. Actually, I'm working on my PhD in psychology, um, and that's my topic. I'm uh, looking at Ritalin and Adderall uh, as a smart drug, not for ADD or ADHD, not for uh, party favors, but as a neuroenhancer. Well, I have found that m many students believe it is. Many students believe it is. And they will borrow their friend's ADHD medication. Uh, many uh, people who are out of school and in work will use it to accelerate their problem solving. So if they have a big project that's due, in two days, they'll take their Adderall and off they go. Uh, and that's to get work done and not for learning, per se. So you have to be, uh, when you look at the literature, it's scattered all over, all different groups, all different reasons. Um, so that's why I wanted to um, pick that up and study it, because I think if there's a smart drug, I want it. You know, we've, we've, right? We've got, we've got kind of a captive audience here, and it's headed toward seven forty. We should let people think about leaving if they want to leave. Quentin, how long? Quentin, where is Quentin? Two more questions. Okay. Two more. Yes. All right. I think Matt had his hand up first, and oh, okay, we we'll go to you, Ron. I think I saw the original brain hacker. I was a resident. Uh, I was down in the emergency room, and one of the ER residents had, uh, took the paddles and say, hey, look at this, boom, and down he went. Absolutely out. Um, the, uh, doing these kind of things, um, actually, that's how you treat severe, severe depression. You give them an electric jolt, and it helps, uh, well, as a neurosurgeon, my theory is once you're shocked like that, have uh, electroconvulsive therapy, if it were on me, I would say, yeah, let me get up, I want to go find a job, I'm happy, life is beautiful, right? I would not want to go through that again. Um, <laughs> It's like, I'm cured, okay, all right, one was enough, one was enough. But uh, they treat people with chronic, uh, I mean, these people are so depressed that they don't even have enough energy to kill themselves. They're, I mean, they're actually uh, paralyzed with the depression, and it does seem to help in that. But anything else, I mean, other than maybe lifting the depression so they can actually learn, you know, um, 
maybe you have some input on that. Yeah, yeah, I've heard, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a little jolt. I think it keeps them awake more than it does actually anything else. And it's probably scary, so therefore you add an emotional valent to it, and now all of a sudden you're going to remember, oh, yeah, I learned that while I was zapping my, you know, or licking the 9-volt battery, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's have let's let Sersha have the last question. Uh, Chancellor Sersha Cheris Graves. Brandon's work, but maybe I should read it to try to find out about it. That's good. But I, I think it's true. We do think conceptually, which is why we've just chosen to show you pictures tonight, hoping that when you take these pictures home, you can have something to take home from the talk with you. Uh, you know, reading is one of the most difficult things that we do as a human. So I'm sorry I don't know the answer to that. Do you know anything about that? We don't know. We don't know. Okay, uh, I think it's time for us to close up for tonight. We'd be happy to talk with you up at the front of the room. Uh, don't hesitate to come up, and we're going to probably have to go home soon as well. So thank you for your time this evening. Thank you.